Our scripture reading today is from Micah 3, 1 through 12. It's Micah 3, 1 through 12. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skins from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that text for us this morning, Micah chapter 3. So I'm going to start with the end for this sermon. Um, you ever heard the expression, um, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? So yeah, there it is, you got it. Um, this idea of don't bury the lead, what's the main thing that we need to hear, and it's this. This is the thought I want us to have in our minds as we get started uh, in, in unpacking what, we, what we've just read. And I'm going to focus on verses three, or five through eight specifically um, as I walk through it. But it's this. It's that when, when, when God called his people to himself, when God called Abraham and said to Abraham, you are going to be the father of a great nation, at which point he had no descendants, uh, one of the things that the Lord told him is you're going to be a great nation and I will be your God and you will be my people and this will be an everlasting covenant. It will never be broken. We sit in this room today as a part of God's faithfulness of that unbroken covenant. What he told his people is he said, you will be a blessing to the nations. That from the beginning, when God was calling his people, 
part of what he was saying to them is one of the reasons you exist in the world is to help. You exist in this world to be a resource and a help and an encouragement and a ministry of reconciliation and compassion and healing in a broken world. That's part of why you're here. So we're not just here to have a covenant that comes to us, but we're here to be people through whom the covenant flows out, that God doesn't just extend his mercy and compassion to us, but then through us, we minister that in the world. And if we lose sight of that, we will become a people who are simply absorbed with ourselves. And we will become a people who look at God as existing to just give us what we need, which is code for what we want. But really what he's called us to do is to follow the example of Christ, and that is to give our lives away, and to give ourselves away, and to pour ourselves out. Jesus said, there is no greater love than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. So we're not called to live lives that are only about us. We're called to live lives that are about, as, as recipients of the mercy and grace of Christ, to be ministers of the mercy and grace of Christ in the world in which we live, and how we live, work, and play, and do relationships. So with that in front of us now, I want to walk through this passage and some of what's happening here in this text. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor in New York City named John Stark, and he has a new book out called The Secret Place of Thunder, Trading Our Need to Be Noticed for a Hidden Life with Christ. And in that book, he writes this. This is kind of a long quote, but it's, but it's worth it. He says this. Um, in Matthew 5... Jesus worked through a number of sins. So the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus worked through a number of sins, murder, adultery, divorce, to show that there's sin behind each sin. Anger behind murder, lust behind adultery. In chapter 6, Jesus begins to look at a number of virtues, almsgiving, fasting, and prayer. And now he is concerned about the sin behind each virtue. Don't practice your righteousness before others. Jesus says, beware. He is explaining that this can trip you up. It can surprise you. It is an ordinary temptation, not an extraordinary one. Beware of practicing your righteousness, showcasing your wisdom, performing your faith before others where you can be seen. Because, and this is the part that really jumped out at me after all that he had just said, he said this, because the longer you are in faith communities, the more you learn what it looks like to be humble, what facial expressions to make, how to carry yourself, what words to say, how to be seen without looking like you want to be seen. The longer you are a Christian, the more believable you can be. You get good at it. I've been thinking about that ever since I read it earlier this week, how easy it is, one, to turn sin into systems that we use to move through the world, but then also how we can make these systems appear even virtuous. And I've been introspective about that last line, the longer you are a Christian, the more believable you can be. You get good at it. Listen, there are things I am good at when it comes to looking like a Christian. 
You've seen them. I have gotten good at being able to pass myself off as a believable Christian, which, if I'm honest, can often be more about how I come across to others than matters of the heart. And I'm sure that you have these things too. You have things that you do, things that you say, things that you express, things that you attend to that are part of throwing people off the scent of what's really going on inside your heart. And we can get good at this. We can be artists with this. And sometimes, when we come up with these systems of protecting ourselves and passing ourselves off as having things in order, we end up manipulating others or deceiving them to get things from them, even if it's something as seemingly small as the benefit of the doubt that we're doing fine, when in fact, we're not doing fine. Today's passage in Micah is a continuation of a decree of judgment that we've been following now for three chapters. And in it, we find the prophets of Israel, real prophets, God's prophets, real prophets, operating with this kind of corrupt duplicity now in order to serve themselves. They have gotten good at seeming to be close to God. But now it has become a ruse that they leverage for personal gain. So let's look at it and then talk it through. Verse five, he says this. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Thus says the Lord is Micah's way of reinforcing he's not speaking for himself here. The Lord is speaking. And these verses come in the context of the prophets speaking out against people who are using their power and their wealth to take from their weaker, poorer neighbors. And they take because they can. And they don't even give a second thought to repercussions because in this system, it doesn't seem to be any repercussions. And so the Lord calls this out. And notice first that he says, he calls Judah my people. That's important for us to remember because this, it reminds us that this book is not about God casting people aside, but this book is about God preserving people. People that he said, I will take you and I will call you, I will make you my own, I will be your God, you will be my people. This is a book about God preserving something, not ending something. But you have these false prophets and what are they doing? They're harassing people. If people have something to give them, then they speak a good word over them and they leave them alone. But if they don't have something to give them, then they bring down war. And they have no conviction about it. And they're governed by their appetites. And they only serve themselves. But they're the prophets. The text goes on. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced 
and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. The Lord is going to remove their ability to prophesy or even pass themselves off as prophets. The community is going to see them as frauds and will come to despise them as frauds. And the Lord will shut their mouths, the instruments that they use to exploit. And God will no longer speak through them, and everyone will know it. James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor from Philadelphia who <clears throat> passed away a number of years ago, but is really one of my, my favorite pastoral commentators um, to read, he distilled this text down into two main problems. The first problem is these, these prophets are leading others astray from money. That's the first problem. But the second problem, and the one I want us to think about even more, is they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. Verse 8, as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah is a different kind of prophet here. He isn't speaking on his own. He's speaking by the power of the spirit of God. He isn't driven by personal gain. He's not aiding in the exploitation of the poor, but instead is speaking a message of justice and might. How do we know that Micah speaks for the Lord? One of the ways that we know is he's speaking against people in power with no aim of profiting personally, but instead is delivering a message of justice and rebuke. He's not here to coddle people in positions of power. He is declaring their sin to them. Why does the Lord declare to his people their sins? Why does he do that? Sin by nature is blinding. We can get deep in it sometimes before we know we're in it or before we at least begin to see the effect of it. We aren't always likely to see our sin clearly and sometimes, this is gonna be hard to hear, Sometimes we don't see our sin clearly because we've gotten really good at looking like we do see our sin clearly. Does that make sense? We can, we can carry ourselves in such a way that people think that we really are so humble in the way that you recognize your own sin. Meanwhile, we're feeling like I'm showing you 3% in a very calculated way that makes you think, one, that I really see my sin, and two, that I don't have a lot of it. We get good at that. So, let's pull back a little bit and ask a 30,000 foot question. What's going on here? in this passage? Why is this in the canon of scripture? What is this, what's, what's happening here on an interpersonal level? Well, you have Israel and Judah as nations who know that they are in a tenuous situation when it comes to peace. Instability is in the air. They are aware of Assyria. They're aware of Babylon. They know that they're not in a position of great strength Instability is in the air. How do people respond 
when instability is in the air? Well, there are things we do. We circle the wagons. We make the circles tighter. Who's, who's allowed to be a part of the circle? Who's not? We often become very self-protective. We limit who has access to our lives, to our resources. We operate in fear and from a position of fear. Have you ever done this before? Maybe a better way to ask the question is, how are you doing this now, right? Well, here the prophets see it. It's like blood in the water. They're aware and they're using the people's fear and the people's desire for some kind of clarity to take advantage of them. The world is falling apart and it's an opportunity. How do you respond when the world is falling apart? Do you seek to gather and to protect for yourself or do you move out toward others? Because so much of the injustice in this world comes through opportunism. It comes through people in positions of strength being able to take from people in positions of weakness. People who seem to have a clear vantage point taking advantage of those who feel like they're in a fog and just need some clarity. We do this with matters of equity. We also do it with our words and our postures toward others, what we harbor in our hearts. And it's important for us to examine ourselves here, to examine our postures toward others, to examine our posture toward ourselves. Some questions you might ask in examining your posture toward others. Is there anyone whom, in whom you hold, is there anyone that you hold in contempt? Is there anyone against whom you bear a grudge? If so, that grudge, is there a scenario in this life where you can see a resolution for that or is it just the way it's going to be? Is there anyone against whom you seek revenge? Those are good self-examination questions in terms of our posture toward others. But here, posture toward yourself. What, what are the lies you tell to paint yourself in a better light? What kinds of deception are you best at? We okay? These are heavy questions, right? The thing about asking a question like, what are the lies you tell to paint yourself in a better light? What kinds of deception are you best at? Is I know I'm hitting 100% of the people in, in, in earshot of my voice, including myself. Now you may be thinking, what's the big deal if I inflate my spirituality a little bit? I mean, that's a victimless crime right? What's the harm in passing myself off as a, little bit more to put, as a little bit more put together than the hot mess that I know that I actually am? What's the harm in that? It doesn't hurt anybody. Oh, oh, <laughs> let's talk about that. The ministry of the prophets in Micah had an intent, and it was this. The prophets existed to be a way for the Lord to care for his people, to lead them in ways of righteousness. 
Why is it important that they would be led in ways of righteousness? Because remember, when God called Abraham to himself and said, you will be my people and I will be your God and this will be an everlasting thing and I will never let you go and you will be a blessing to the nations. When the Lord told him that, what he was saying is, my people are meant to exist as a source of light and truth and mercy and help in a broken world. And if the prophets can't be honest about what the Lord is saying to his people. And if they use their positions to exploit people and to take advantage of them by way of their positions of trust and authority, they cut God's people off at the knees when it comes to Israel and Judah being able to be of any help. Because they're not getting anything true and they're being told everything's fine. Let me say this another way. The goal of the Christian life is not to appear to others to be close to God. The goal of the Christian life is to be close to God and to serve others out of that. So the goal of the Christian life is not to appear to others to be close to God, but it is to be close to God and to serve others out of that place. The temptation, especially in the West where we are surrounded by a lot of privilege and convenience, is to think that our spiritual lives are ultimately about ourselves. And then God's pleasure and God's blessing in our lives look like comfort and provision. And we can think that God's work begins and ends in our lives with what we think we need, which is often just code for what we think we want. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. A lot of times we're judging God and his faithfulness based on his ability to eradicate trouble from our lives by filling them up with comfort. It gets worse. When this is how we think, it can be easy to begin to regard God's provision and blessing as an entitlement, (laughs) as something that we deserve. And when we think of it as something that we deserve, and then we don't seem to be getting it in the way that we think we deserve, we can easily at that point justify ourselves into finding ways to just go get it. And how do we just go and get it? We take it. We take it. We justify ourselves into saying, this is what God should be giving me. And we go find ways of getting those things for ourselves like the prophets are doing in Micah. To do that, we have to have a very small view of our neighbors. But that's not hard to do. What if we really embraced the truth that the goal of the Christian life is not to appear to others to be close to God, but rather is to be close to God? and to serve others out of that place. That's when God starts using our lives to help 
mend the brokenness and the injustice in our world. That's when God starts using things like our fragility and our need to help foster ministries of reconciliation through humility and open-handedness. Are you starting to see now the cost of passing ourselves off as people who don't need help? It's expensive. In effect, when we pass ourselves off as people who don't need help, what we're doing is we're promoting the idea that we don't really have a need for repentance and we don't really have a need for a savior because everything is generally fine. Without repentance, though, we have no hope of forgiveness. And without a savior, we have no means of forgiveness. And so we have to lean in to our need for redemption and salvation, the redemption and the salvation that God supplies. Why? Why do we need to lean into that? Because we're not the only ones who need it. We're not the only ones who need it. The gospel doesn't come to us and stop. It comes to us and then is intended to flow through us. The world needs the redemption and salvation God supplies, and the Lord uses his people to not only help them see it, but he uses us to actually help administrate aspects of the care and the mercy that come with his redemption and his salvation. He really uses us for that. The Lord tells us he will respond to the injustices of this world. He will. He's got that covered. And he will do it in spite of his people if he must. But the better way, the better way is for the Lord to respond to the injustices of this world through his people. Where are you resisting that? In what ways have you reduced your spiritual life to what you want and what God gives? In what ways have you gotten so good at seeming to be a good Christian that you have actually cut off people's ability to actually see you? And how might you begin to walk that back with God's help? And what has he already given you to lead you out into the open of being known? One of the best things he gives us here is friends. How might you work to get outside of yourself to serve others with your time and with your resources? The Lord desires to work in and through our lives. It's one of his great blessings is that he desires to work in and through us for the sake of healing and for the sake of mercy. May he move us then out from our shelters of self-protection and into a place of giving our lives away as messy as they are for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, you said, Jesus, you said that it is harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And your disciples all said, well, that's impossible. And you got to the point. Nothing is impossible with God. Lord, we recognize that 
poverty takes many forms. It takes the form of people having a real genuine lack of resources, materially, socially. But poverty also looks like bloat and excess to the point that there's nothing that stirs our soul anymore. And all we really want is to have our appetites satisfied and to move through this one life that you've given us focused on that. That's a great poverty. Lord, I pray for all of us, for this church, that you would use us to be salt, light, mercy, compassion, healing, reconciliation in our communities, in our relationships, in our friendships, in the ways that we come alongside people who are different from us, in the ways that we desire to learn and hear. Father, thank you that you are a God of justice and mercy and compassion and for giving us your son to reconcile us to yourself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.